Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Censored, the podcast wallowing in all types of public outrage. I'm Aoife Vrtnach. And I'm always here for a good theatre riot, but the backroom politics of censure, the whispered offstage conversations, they're just as much fun. This episode is about those more nebulous kinds of censorship, the informal suppressions that shape the theatre we see. Dr Barry Houlihan from NUI Galway knows all about these backstage shenanigans, and he's documented them extensively in his new book, Theatre and Archival Memory, Irish Drama and Marginalised Histories, 1951-77. to Just a quick trigger warning, one of the play characters mentioned bears a racial slur. Hi Barry, thanks for coming back to the podcast. Thanks so much, Heath. It's great to be back. It is so exciting to deal with theatre again, because I've already covered the Playboy riots in the earlier part of the series. And now we're turning to perhaps the less sexy, but just as interesting aspects of theatre censorship or censure, should I say. Yeah, I think that's an important thing is that where censorship happens isn't always at state level. It's not always on the official level. Um, when I was researching the, the book recently in recent years, I was drawn down many meandering rabbit holes of, of public morality and public censorship uh, about theatre going as much as theatre making. Um, so this is this book and this story of Irish theatre censorship is about the audience as much as what's on stage as well. It's wonderful to think that the audience are so much a part of theatre, not just in those great spectacles of the riots. Um, I think that's what's really interesting about your book, that sort of interplay between the public and the play as it's being performed. It's such a different thing, you know, from from sitting down and reading a book very privately. It's a discreet, that's a, that reading of a banned book can be a very discreet act. Whereas I always think theatre going, in a sense, can be a big statement. It can be a political statement sometimes, depending on the theatre you're going to or the work you're going to see. So I suppose a live event, it's that question, does it happen unless someone is there to see it? Um, anyone can be seen in the audience. A reviewer has to write about it, you know, if it's a big production in, in a, either a regional or a national newspaper the next day. So there is a record, there's a public record created about a play once it happens. Um, sometimes it's not just the action on stage, sometimes the audience plays back. Uh, and as we've seen from the Playboy riots onwards in the early 1920s at the Abbey Theatre, or indeed earlier in that, in the Playboy uh, case with Sean O'Casey's Plowing the Stars in the 1920s. I was more drawn to the, the post-war years or post-emergency years in Ireland's context, 1950s, and then towards throughout the decades, throughout to the end of the 1970s. 
and was just fascinated by what I was finding, not just in the archives, but in the newspaper reports, in people's letters and correspondence. Um, so it's very much a public story of theatre going at that time. One of the curious things that I have discussed before is that there isn't actually official state censorship of theatre in Ireland after the foundation of the state. And that's in contrast to England and, of course, in contrast to the strict censorship of physical publications. And I was intrigued to see that one of the side effects of that from your research is that producers tried to bring material banned in England and Ireland into the public view through this stage. Can you tell me a bit about some of those examples? Yeah, I mean, this is a curious thing in, in an Irish context, at least, in that there was, there was no official stage censorship. But that, of course, doesn't mean censorship didn't happen. And that can come from authority. I mean, censorship is really about authority closing down the public's desire, their willingness to explore new ideas, new culture, uh, be that on the page or on the stage. So when I was getting digging into this, it was really about, well, what sources do we have to examine You know, what was happening? Who was viewing or kind of vetting the theatre? You know, and, and it, without that official censorship, you know, sometimes banned books found their way coming to an audience via the stage, which happened as well, or else work came in that was deemed obscene or blasphemous, that if it was made or published as a book, it would certainly, or written as a book, it would certainly never have been published or it would have been banned in Ireland. Um, I, I think the pocket theatres were really important for this in Dublin um, from the 1950s onwards, places like the Pike Theatre. Now, it's a very famous incident of the Rose Tattoo censored uh, in 1957, um, I think, if memory serves me correct, where uh, the European premiere of Tennessee Williams um, played a Rose Tattoo happened. And the perceived sense of a, a contraception, a condom being on stage was enough for the play to be shut down. So it, it's more of a, it's more the theatre was more of a banning, you know, the presence or the liveness of, of you know, blasphemous or, or, or object, deemed objectionable um, events. Um so the book was something that was made banned outright, but the play or banning of a play is sometimes the banning of an action or a prop as much as banning the, the work itself. That's fascinating. I love the idea that even the illusion or the belief that a condom might exist on stage would provoke such offence. Like it doesn't have to be provable like the red lines under the printed word. And there was, I mean, the spying that was going on, for want of a better word. I mean, so much I found in the, in the, um, the, the, the archive of Archbishop John Charles McQuaid, who, you know, is a regular feature on your, your podcast. <laughs> He's like a, a pantomime villain in some extent. Um, but in those files, you know, I was the brilliant archivist there was helping me out on accessing what I needed, you know, and there's a broad collection of theatre files, really. And um, this great bulk of records landed on my table one day a number of years ago. And within all these records were, you know, reports, play reports by members of the clergy or other lay members reporting back to McQuaid. But this was also for plays in England. So this is what was really fascinating me about the different perceptions of theatre, like acceptable theatre, between England and Ireland. So, for instance, The Ginger Man, I know a play we, we talked about before, but the, the, the adaptation of J.P. Dunleavy's novel was vetted in England before it came to Ireland. Other people like Brendan Behan um, or British playwrights like John Osborne um, or Joe Osborne, or sorry, John Osborne or Joe Orton, surrealist playwrights and, and writers which fill their work with violence and sex and um, all sorts of surrealist events that happened certainly would never have made their way onto the Irish stage. But when they did, curiously, they seemed to slip under the radar a little bit. Um, I know there was a multi-page report in the Archbishop's archives about um, the Ginger Man. 
and that somehow if it had stayed in England, if it had not travelled and transferred back to Dublin, that, that was almost acceptable. Let, let it corrupt the minds over there. But the worry was when it was coming back into Dublin and back into Ireland. Uh, and I mean, on those reports um, in the archive, I mean, this is 1960s, 1970s, you know, plays like Joe Orton's Loot and Entertaining Mr. Sloan, um, you know, they, when they went on at the Ablana Theatre, which was a little basement, little pocket theatre under Bus Aris, um, you know, uh, in, in the case of Mr. Sloan, one woman, one woman uh, left the theatre uh, with her family in tow and called it the most indecent play she had ever seen. We are not narrow minded, but this play is immoral and indecent. A man changes his underwear on the stage. Ooh. <laughs> you know, as risque as things got, things got worse. But yet it's public morality. This is how the public, you know, obviously under certain level of guidance of the Catholic Church and their expectations on how people conduct themselves privately is somehow mirrored in the theatre. It's a very public and private space at once almost. Mm. The question, I suppose, that you mentioned just there at the beginning, authority, you know, that the authority can come from the state censor or, you know, the the theatre censor in England, but also from the audience and from John Charles McQuaid, our favourite. There was a line that really stood out to me when you were talking about that. You said censorship and collusion when you were discussing the theatre management and their relationship sometimes with these powerful figures in in the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. I mean, McQuaid was an extremely, you know, authoritarian figure for sure, but also extremely intelligent in how he conducted that. So in some ways, he was pulling these strings from, you know, the very grand surroundings of the Bishop's Palace in Drumcondra without necessarily getting his, his hands dirty in the process. So like those uh, lay people he had, or perhaps some other uh, members of the clergy reporting on the plays. Um, you know, it, it, it is, it's almost comical that they were reporting on these perceived obscene plays, but offering to do it again. Um, you know, we've no problem going viewing these again. If there's any more you want me to review on, I'll do it. You know, these are the kind of letters that are, are out there. Um, you know, so the collusion comes from within his own circle and also the public. Another letter was there from a printer in Dublin who had received the script of a child's, or like a primary school children's passion play, um, pageant play at Christmas time and was worried it was obscene and re- and took it on himself to write to the Archbishop and I, I beg your you know, Archbishop's advice and your Grace's advice on this matter should I print this or am I in, in breach of any perceived blasphemy here by printing a child's play so that's the level it reaches and to some extent of absurdity you know but that's you know when you get into theatre management then it, I think the case of the ginger man is, is the perfect case study there um, yet again, where Louis Elliman was the director of the Gaiety Theatre, where the production was being staged uh, and the crisis meetings are conducted in his office at the theatre with the playwright um, and the director, Philip Wiseman, along with Dunleavy. Um, and does the correspondence that happens after the play is shut down in 1959 are directly between uh, Elliman and and and, uh, and McQuaid. Um, so there's certainly a level of that goes beyond respect, but also you have to call it in some level collusion, um, you know, without wanting to seem or sound too murky about these things. But authority, I suppose, works with authority. Um, and that, that that plays a big role in how theatre was not performed or not performed. One of the things that really struck me when I do archive work in this period is how there is a kind of a reflex from some people, some of them powerful, some of them not. They ask the clergy for permission for things. They ask for their opinion. They bring them in unasked for, you know, unoffered. And there seems to be a real anxiety about their ability to make decisions without the clergy, like your printer that you just cited writing in about the passion play that 
clearly couldn't have been obscene because it was for children. But there is that weird thing going on, isn't there? I mean, there is. I mean, that's why the theatre, I think, is so unique as a place of public expression, but bringing people together, you know. So what happens, you know, privately, where we go to experience our own daily lives, you know, for better, for worse, is in the theatre, really. It's another way of doing that culturally. Um, so I think there's a fear around theatre that it is a, it is a tool or, you know, a weapon might be too strong a word, but it's a way of bringing out topics that otherwise, you know, people might not want to recognise within the state, um, be those issues of marginalisation of various communities, talking about sex and sexuality, you know, doing that in a theatre can be you know, quite provocative for certain elements of, of society who don't want those topics aired, who don't want to, dem- who don't want to recognise them in Ireland. You know, this is something about bringing in the, or what the critics reflected on about John uh, Osborne and, and Joe Orton, these surrealist British playwrights, is that, and even John Lahr, who's the biographer of, of, of Orton, said, you know, for all their surrealist work, they were still realists, you know, even though they have profane violence and sexuality and nudity and sex on stage, they're realists. So this is, in some ways, even behind all the farce and, and the kind of high exaggeration, there is still such realism there that is uncomfortable for this new Irish Republic to recognise. They prefer not to recognise that. Um, and in a, in a sense, the the family was is, is this element in, in the, you know, the state's eyes as much as in the Catholic Church's eye as being the foundational unit of that new Republic. Um, and if we're going to the, the theatre to see these, these obscene or these sexualized plays, that, that's not the, the kind of um, nuclear family of, you know, the husband, the wife and the children in the nice suburban home. So the theatre is a way of dismantling all these different mechanics of the state and, and indeed the church and their own collusion as well. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So we have to turn to Edna O'Brien, who is, of course, called celebre in censorship because of her personality and her work and who does actively campaign, I think, against those stereotypes of family, you know, whether as a daughter or a wife or a divorced woman later. And one of her later novels, A Pagan Place, was adapted for the stage in Dublin in 1974. Now, that wasn't banned as a book, 
because censorship had relaxed at that point. But having read your summary of the play, I would love to see it. It's got nuns, priests, madwomen, suicide, sexual assault, attempted rape, but in arrangements that are pretty unpredictable and unexpected, I think. And it seems to be a relatively neglected work. Would I be right in saying that? It, you know, it is. It absolutely is. And I think she's a neglected playwright. You know, obviously she is, um, you know, an arch novelist. She's, she's one of the most celebrated and rightfully recognised of, of Irish novelists. But yet I think her plays deserve attention as well. Um, not just for adaptations, but she did write some original plays as well. But in bringing a pagan place to the stage, you know, that was quite a, a circuitous journey in its own right. It, it premiered first in England again. I think it was the Royal Court Theatre before it came um, to, to to Dublin. And it was quite well received in London. So again, you didn't have that staunch public. Man, this is the thing I keep going back to, the public censorship and the morality uh, of the time. And even in the press reviews, I mean, there, the critics are uniformly male. You know, the only really, the only you know, theatre critic who was a woman, not necessarily in the media all the time, was Mary Manning, who herself was a playwright. So, I mean, her own work and her own work as a critic is extremely important. But you're dealing with a, a wide press or a body of press critics who are uniformly male, um, often writing for conservative publications or were otherwise kind of supported by the government and church anyway. So they dismiss the play entirely once it reaches Dublin. Um, and again, in, in other works and in elsewhere, in other writings elsewhere, Edna O'Brien herself talked about this this conservative choke of entering the theatre in Dublin on that night. And the, it was already a done deal, really, that the reception she would get was going to be negative because she herself was this scandalous woman coming into the National Theatre, this banned writer. And here she is bringing a play about, about rape and about the threat of, again, yet again, women being sent away out of the family home and into these institutions. And it's a, it's a clear allusion to the Magdalene Laundries, you know, perhaps the Mother and Baby Home Network as well. But within the putting that on stage, again, verbalizing all of this, again, this is why I think the theatre is such a, a powerful place for this to happen. It's that verbalizing of these otherwise hidden, um, you know, perhaps inner monologues of, of society that they don't want to have these issues issues aired. Um, so I think she suffered a great deal of, of that public censorship. Now, it might be an accident. It might not have been an accident. But even when the play opened at the Abbey Theatre, when I was going through the, the archives of that production, one interesting newspaper photograph shows her sitting on the stairs on the opening night of her own play. And it's such a striking photograph of this figure, her body language sitting on the stairs, isolated away from the audience. You know, that the playwright was, you know, it wouldn't happen to Brian Friel or Tom Murphy on an opening night of their play. Um, but yet there she was, isolated from the audience and from everyone else. And it kind of, you know, becomes a symbol for her own presence within Irish culture, Irish literature and Irish theatre of the time. But I think it was a really, really uh, startling play. And no doubt, I'm not surprised of the reception it did get in 1970s Ireland. She was just such a strong figure, really, at the time, wasn't she? She was like a lightning rod for all of the anxieties and fears about these uppity women, not only moving to England, but writing things about us that would come home and hold up a mirror and do all sorts of critical things. I mean, she was so extraordinary in the context of the 60s and the 70s, really. Yeah, no, she is she's extraordinary and fearless, despite the contempt that was thrown at her at, at practically every turn. Um, you know, the opening of the play itself is on this darkened stage where the young girl, Krina, comes onto the stage. And there's, you know, it's set in this Midlands, maybe slash West Clare, you know, kind of hinterland of her own local environment. Um, I think the village is Coosin, you know, fictional or not. 
Um, but there's this kind of shaded figure called, you know, the nigger in the play. And he is, it's all about this ostracizing these male figures, you know, um, you know, being threatening towards young women in a sexualized way, in a violent way. And yet he is not, you know, in the context of the play, the figure of danger. You know, the figures of danger in the in the play are still the father of the household. They are the priest. They are the doctor. Um, you know, these figures of power and authority, which really, at one stroke of their pen, can signal that the 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 movement of that young girl out of her family and into an institutional home. Um, you know, to to carry that perceived stigma um, of simply being pregnant, but yet it's obviously as a result of of rape in this instance. Yeah, it's an incredible work. I I have ordered the um the script to come from the library, but it is stuck in the endless interlibrary loan process. So I'm waiting, but I I'll definitely read either the script or the novel itself, I think. Yeah, I mean even that's interesting the play script it was published by Faber and Faber. So it had a major publisher behind it, you know, a major English publisher, British publisher. Um I don't think it's been republished in Ireland since. It certainly didn't have an, an Irish outlet at the time in terms of a publisher. So it, it was out there, but it's had a very, very small production history. I think it might have had a, a production later on in the 1990s, I think. Um, but that one in the 1970s, I think, was a really, uh, really powerful example of, of, of what her work could do on the stage as well. And the 70s, I suppose, they're a decade that is kind of a little bit forgotten in the popular mind, I think. Um, certainly, we're very focused in the last 10 years on the 1920s with our decade of centenaries or whatever it is. I keep commemorations. Anyway, so the 70s, they are kind of an ambiguous decade, I think, in the popular mind anyway. And one of the things that came out in your book and in other research I've been doing is the League of Decency, who are just a wonderfully named organisation. And in a way, they're the heirs of the Catholic Truth Society, who are so powerful in the early 20th century. And it may not have been as big or as it's not as well known. It certainly had powerful effects on the Dublin theatre scene, didn't it? It did. I mean, they're they're quite an organisation for sure. I mean, the, the title, the name, um, you know, League of Decency, you know, it's like a bad Netflix series. <laughs> Ultra conservative, far right Catholic uh, Institute, you know, perhaps not un, un, unsimilar to others today whom perhaps we should leave nameless. So... For what we were interested in doing was really monitoring, not unlike what McQuaid was doing in the 1950s uh, and 60s, was monitoring what was happening culturally in the Irish theatre and doing what they could to shut it down. So, and again, this is the unofficial censorship that was happening, um, you know, but but really affecting what was going on in the theatre. You know, the project, I suppose there was was a new flurry of of venues, I suppose, in that time as well. So the Project Arts Centre was one of those um, you know, it, it was born out of an arts centre or an arts movement, and it still is today, a most wonderful arts centre in Dublin uh, of, of, of theatre, visual arts, music and so on. Um, so in the late 1960s, you had people running it like Jim Sheridan, Peter Sheridan. Um, you had young artists like Mannix Flynn coming in there. Lots of others who were bringing new avant-garde and thinking into what theatre should be. And it wasn't always about having one playwright and one director bringing a play on. This was a very collaborative time for Irish theatre, and that in itself was, was pretty radical, you know, mirroring maybe what others were doing in London at the at the time and slightly earlier. So at Project in 1967, there was a new season of Irish plays put on. Uh, and in this, it was, you know, a really socially reflective um, programme and season. There was lots of plays about homeless uh, homelessness and, um, you know, young uh, youth immigration 
Um, you know, so it was a really time of, of kind of reflecting on what young culture and youth culture was about. Within that were plays full of sex and sexuality and questioning of what, um, you know, again, a modern Ireland was about, you know, and are we still in a, in a conservative republic where these issues cannot be talked about? You know, you could look at one example um, called Guilty Because We're Filthy, which is, for my money, the best play title um, that I've heard about for a while. And what kills me about this play is that I haven't read it. And I wish if anyone out there has a script, um, if the playwright was Christy Hudson, um, for, uh, uh, writer of uh, Guilty Cause We're Filthy. So I'm working off of the archival materials around that, the, the press reviews. And what happened eventually was these lengthy exchange of letters in the national, in the national press between members of the League of Decency and members of the cast defending this play, which had um, allusions to masturbation, um, allusions to burle- burlesque kind of scenes involving nuns and priests, which uh, at least the the letters in the newspapers allude to kind of alterated costumes that the nuns' habits and the priests' costumes are not just black, white, drab. They're very much uh, sexed up in the in the play. So there's no doubt this would have caused scandal in the 1970s or any time around the, in the mid 20th century and um, project was one of those venues that that took on those kind of plays and gave an outlet uh, for these works and really didn't care about getting a slap on the wrist they wanted that they wanted to be provocative um, but the league of decency led by jb murray um took things one step further and appealed directly to dublin city council um and their their cultural committee um to have have the play pulled and not just the play pulled, but the funding pulled for Project Art Centre. Uh, and that was their way of really shutting these works down. You shut down the theatre, not just the play. You know, books can be banned and, and different things like that. But you, if you close down a theatre, you close down a whole group of artists, um, from directors to designers to, to writers and actors. So they were, they were active and vocal. Not sure how successful they were either, um, but they, were, they certainly made their presence felt. Yes, they were uh, quite important in the 70s. J.B. Murray took court cases against the importation of contraceptives. Um, but then, of course, most kind of famously and hilariously actually died in the middle of making a complaint to RTE about a dirty, filthy programme he had just watched, which seems like a sort of joke, but is actually true. He was killed by filth. You know, it's, it's incredible. Um, so it's probably not the way he wanted to go. But yeah, I mean, this comes in the late 1970s, where I think the, the program was called The Spike. Um, it was a, a series in RT, which apparently has the first f- um, screening of female nudity on the, on the RT broadcaster, on the national broadcaster, and was enough to induce a heart attack, in such anger that it induced. But, you know, about, you know, in the, even that instance, again, guilty because we're filthy and this, this greater, um, you know, this collusion again and, and authority linking in together. So the, the mayor of Dublin, our chair of the Dublin City Council Committee, Ben Briscoe, he sided with them. Um, and it was actually Rory Quinn, young TD at the time. Um, he objected to the he objected to the objection um, and argued on behalf of project that no this this needs to to stay on so um, yeah that, so again power kind of it, it it can be these lay institutes these lay organisations but at a higher level when you have people like the, the chair of Dublin City Council Cultural Committee siding with them um, and agreeing that yes these works cannot go on that's a very different situation and it's quite a sinister situation to be in as well. You have to wonder whether things like that had a kind of a broader chilling effect on some artists' willingness to push the boundaries when they realised that maybe they would not just get a bad review, but potentially anger 
a funding body. You know, that's a big decision to make for anyone who's dependent upon funding like that. Yeah, no, I think it definitely does. You know, I mean, I think that that was probably on Louis Elliman's mind in the case of the Ginger Man at the Gaiety Theatre. And, and people have, you know, theatres are institutions in their own way, rightly or wrongly. They have an audience that they cater for. They might have a very set audience and they, they don't want to lose them either, you know, especially those which are, are more box office dependent. And perhaps we're at a time in the 1970s, which maybe there might have been less direct funding support. Um, you know, I know the Arts Council was, in its, you know, was, was you know, well established by then. Dublin City Council was funding Project Arts Centre. If you lose th- those chunks, heavy chunks of funding, um, that puts the whole theatre at, at risk, really. And then a lot of artists work as well. Um, yeah. So I, I think there was a risk that it could have tempered you know, some artistic direction if that prevailing sense of, of, of power over um, the, the theatre going audience. You know, that was another thing that if you were seen, you know, going to these plays, you know, could certain things happen to you as a public member? You know, it's not not impossible, but that's some um, some of that reflected back onto the audience as well. And they were they were aware of it. It makes me think of the previous episode I did with Dr. Roisin Kennedy about the uh, visual art where artists have in her mind, they have adopted various strategies both to resist and to conceal the resistance in order to, you know, get away with it and still please the commercial market while making a commentary on censoriousness. Do you think that theatre was also doing something similar, that it was in that kind of balancing act? It, it probably was, um, you know, I mean, it's obviously one of the similar visual arts that people um, uh, engage with, you know, how one intersects with the other. You know, I, I know I talked about in the book, you know, work by Louis Labrocchi uh, and his painting A Family from 1951, which it just gave a nice, I think, impetus to that idea of the nuclear family in the Irish state, this perceived um, state-sanctioned state version of the family. And yet Labrocchi's painting kind of undoes all that. Uh, and it becomes, in a sense, the broken family of a pagan place and Edna O'Brien or, you know, the ginger man as well. You know, I suppose visual art reflects one version of a vision or an image and theatre does that in its own way in a sense, it's liveness and its performance. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a curious thing about how all that comes together under the auspices of performing Ireland and performing a modern Ireland as well. It seems interesting that we don't really think about theatre in these terms of daily censorship. I mean, we know about the riots and the really big scandals, but unlike publications, we haven't really thought about it in our popular memory as a a space where the drama of censorship is played out. And that seems quite strange to me because obviously your work has unearthed many examples and we just don't seem to have kind of brought it out into the the big narrative yet i i was i was conscious of that and and i suppose in that way i was deliberately looking in some ways for these stories as well i, I was interested in that period first of all i knew i suppose from a historian background it was a time of immense social change and i was interested in, well how did irish culture reflect that social change you know from you know debates around contraception abortion um sexuality um all these various things but yes, I think it's not a mystery in that some ways these plays were so reflective of their time and spoke and reacted to in Ireland directly of that moment that five years later, 10 years later, they might have lost a little bit of resonances with audiences. Um, also, outside of the likes of Edna O'Brien published by Faber, a lot of these works weren't published 
and that automatically reduces how they can be reperformed anyway. Like like the the case of guilty because we're filthy. I desperately want a script of that play, um, or whatever version of a script there might be. Um, and so that's another aspect of that period being more collaborative. You know, it wasn't a, a strictly script based theatre. Um, you know, so the records I work from are those which survived, first of all, which is often a great accident um, that they survive in the archive at all. But in throughout the book, I'm trying to pull those scraps together and pull those remnants of these performances back together and, and weave that story and narrative of, I think, a really interesting time and perhaps an underknown time of what was happening in the theatre. You know, it was happening in basements under under Bosaurus at the Ablana. It was happening at these pocket theatres in the 1950s and 60s from um, uh, the Pike Theatre to um, the Studio Theatre of Mount Street in the 1950s, uh, you know, right up to... Uh, the National Theatre of the Abbey and, and the Gate in Dublin. So there was, there's national context to this and also those other smaller avant-garde, uh, more, I suppose, modernist or, you know, postmodernist little pocket theatres. You know, it was a, a fascinating time in, in Dublin, not just in Dublin, but in Ireland. Um, so it's, I think it's a bit underknown and hopefully the book might weave some of those stories back together. Oh, I think so. I found it a great read, I have to say. There was lots in it and so much of it was... So interesting and provocative, and it really brought a, a a sort of neglected decade, at least from my own research, you know, into my consciousness. And um, I think it was great. And thank you so much for sharing all of these amazing stories uh, with me today in the podcast. No, no, thanks so much, Eva. So that wraps up this season of the podcast, where I was obsessed with informal censorship. To be fair, it's been a lot. Riots, burnings, boycotts, dodgy dealings, cowardly bureaucrats. If I didn't laugh, I'd feckin' cry. As I made the episodes, though, I kept thinking about the way people use censorship today. Don't ever check out hashtag censorship, lads, because there's some wild shit in there. Mostly, I think, it's a political weapon. Crying censorship is a way to grab the moral high ground for yourself after you've said something nasty. It's all about weaponizing the politics of victimhood. I believe most people are talking about censure here. The ways that communities, especially social media communities, pressure each other to mitigate speech and actions. The way I see it, the word censorship should be reserved for formal and administrative actions, like the book bans in American public libraries, or the removal of stock from Hong Kong's public libraries because the Chinese administration finds them politically unacceptable. The biggest and most consequential censorship happens in authoritarian states like China and Russia. Governments still have immense power to delete art or information from the public space, and I think their actions should be dignified with a special noun. What they can do is so monumental. They can imprison or disappear people, that we should give it its own word, censorship. Inevitably, of course, I was thinking a lot about that newly coined phrase, cancel culture. Apparently, it dates from 2017, so it is banking new, although it is definitely related to political correctness from the 1990s. Neither cancel culture nor political correctness are easy to define because people like to use them in different ways. And in fairness, I think cancel culture is reaching for a distinction between severe governmental censorship 
and fuzzier social censure. Except that most cancellations are actually boycotts, where a person or their body of work is ostracised. Humans have been shunning and shaming each other forever. It's a vital part of social control. So why have we invented new words for an ancient thing? Is it because the rules of the game have changed? We have new technologies, new gatekeepers, and to be fair, new emotional dynamics. Or is it that we're embarrassed, that we're still shaming each other, when the publicly declared spirit of the age is about rejecting shame? We often talk about embracing ourselves, loving ourselves for who we are, and refusing to take other people's opinions on board. That's pretty much the opposite of embracing shame. And yet we weaponize shame in Twitter pylons. I don't get it, it's quite contradictory. Personally, I think cancel culture is censure in a new suit, who swap their sensible brogues for car-to-bar heels. The technology is extremely new, but the emotions and the intentions behind them, not so much. Anyway, I'm already thinking about season eight, and I think I'm going to return to censorship proper, the government blacklist again. I've had some great ideas for texts already, but I was thinking maybe I should do more magazines and newspapers. Let me know if you think that's a good idea. I'm on Twitter at CensoredPod or follow me on Patreon. I will be taking a small break over the summer from the regular schedule, but I'm not shutting up entirely. There will be monthly releases in July and August, more free-ranging conversations on censure than any specific books. So till then, keep your hands squeaky clean and your minds filthy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.